Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are the God who speaks to your people. Thank you for speaking to us even now through your holy word. And we pray this morning that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to apply this truth to our hearts, that we might be convicted of sin, driven to true repentance, drawn to an ever-deepening faith in Christ, and filled with gratitude for your salvation, that we might respond by living lives pleasing to Christ, our Redeemer and Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14. You can find this in the Pew Bibles on page 942. And though we'll be looking at verses 5 through 14, we'll begin by reading at the beginning of the chapter. So here now, this is God's holy and infallible word, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For for if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Christianity is a religion based on historical facts. The Bible not only records the historical facts going back even to the very creation of the world, but it also gives us the correct interpretation of these facts from God's own lips. Only by knowing these truths as given to us by God in the scriptures can we understand who we are and how we ought to respond to these truths, how we ought to live. As we've been studying the letter to the Romans, we've seen that because the first man, Adam, sinned, all mankind descending from him are under the curse of sin and his punishment death. In Adam, all sinned. In Adam, all die. But God, in his mercy, out of his pure grace, in the fullness of time to demonstrate his love for us, he sent a Savior. 
a little over 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, being born of the Virgin Mary. This is the incarnation that we celebrate this time of year. Jesus Christ then went on to live a perfect life. He died on the cross bearing the sin of his people. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. These are the historical facts. This is what really happened. But what do they mean for you and for me today? Throughout this section of the letter, Paul has been teaching us all about union with Christ through faith. Though you were born into Adam, inheriting his sin and inheriting death in him, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are transferred out of Adam and united to Christ, and in him you inherit righteousness and life eternal. We saw last time in the first four verses of this chapter that this union with Christ is symbolized by our baptism. And we also began to reflect last time on the implications of this union with Christ for our daily lives. Paul had said back in chapter 5 that even as sin abounded in Adam, in Christ, grace superabounded. It abounded all the more. But then he opened chapter 6 with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers this with the strongest denial. By no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It is impossible for the believer who has been united to Christ, united to his death and resurrection, to continue to live under the dominion of sin. In verses 5 through 14, which we're studying this morning, Paul will continue to develop this truth and apply it to our lives and he uses here a pattern that we see often in the scriptures, a pattern that we uh, call with the fancy technical terms, the indicative followed by the imperative. That is to say that Paul first lays out the facts. He lays out what is true for believers. And then he tells us how we are required to respond to these facts, how believers must live in light of these truths. We'll follow this pattern in our sermon this morning beginning with the indicative, what is true, in verses 5 through 10, followed by the imperative, how we respond, in verses 11 through 14. So first, the indicative. You have died and been raised with Christ. This is what is true of believers in Jesus Christ. The foundational principle of all this is union with Christ. We see this in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The word used here and translated united actually comes from the world of agriculture. Could also be translated to grow together. The same word is used by Jesus in Luke 8, 7 in the parable of the sower, where he says, some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. There the seed was interwoven with thorns, and it was dominated and choked by those thorns. But here Paul speaks of being interwoven, of growing together, united with Christ in his death and resurrection. As we continue to work our way through this passage, we'll see wherever you see these terms, in him, with him, you know that Paul is applying this basic principle, union with Christ. Because of this union, 
Because we have grown together with Christ, united to him, we have died to sin in Christ's death, and we have been raised to new life in Christ's resurrection. Let's first consider in this Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. Paul writes in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And here we need to ask the question, what does it mean for Christ to die to sin? This might be puzzling to us at first when you remember Christ himself was sinless. He was without sin. Being born of a virgin, he came as the new Adam, the head of a new humanity. And so he did not sin in Adam. He did not inherit Adam's sinful nature. And he never sinned in his entire life. So how did he die to sin? In order to conquer sin and death for us on the cross, Jesus was identified with sin. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. On the cross, Christ bore our sin. He bore our guilt and our shame. He bore the penalty for our sin, death. On the cross, Christ conquered not his own sin, for he had none, but our sin. By paying the death penalty we deserve, thus he died to sin. This is then applied to us through our union with Christ. Reading verses 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul speaks here of our old self, or more literally we could say the old man, the sinful and corrupt old man inherited from the first man, Adam. And he says the old man has died with Christ on the cross. And then he gives us two implications of this fact. First, this renders the body of sin powerless. It is brought to nothing. And second, this means we are no longer enslaved to sin. Here Paul is personifying sin. He's depicting it as a ruler to which we were once enslaved in Adam. But in Christ, the old slave master has been put to death that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul says the same thing in the positive In verse 7, the one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin's power. He puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are trusting In Christ, you are united to him, and so you have not only died to sin with him, but second, you have been raised to new life with him. Let's again, in looking at the resurrection, begin with Christ's own resurrection. It's described for us in verses 9 through 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. By his resurrection, Christ has not only conquered sin, but he has conquered death as well. And he now lives and reigns eternally. His resurrection is irreversible. It can never be undone. 
as we look at how this is applied to believers who are raised with Christ, well, notice in this passion, in this passage, there's a tension between two sides of this, between the already and the not yet. On one hand, it's clear that our bodily resurrection is still to come in the future when Christ returns. And so Paul speaks repeatedly of how we will certainly be raised in the future tense. It's future, it's still to come, and yet it's certain. As certainly as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we will certainly be raised with him. So this is the future reality, the not yet, what is to come. But we also see in this passage is the already. The fact that this future resurrection is already working back in time. It's already at work in us even now, giving us new life by the Spirit through union with Christ. Just as Christ is now raised to live to God, so too through union with him, we are alive to God. Already we have this resurrection at work within us by his Spirit. This new life in union with Christ, it's sometimes called the new birth. God gives us a new spirit, and he puts a new heart in us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have something similar in Colossians 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And so, through union with Christ, the old man has died. The dominion of sin and death is conquered and we are raised to live a new life. To live for God. Before we move on to the imperative, I want to clarify and emphasize what Paul is saying here, because it is of utmost importance that every believer understands this, understands the facts, understands the reality, what is true of you in Christ. Paul is speaking here of a once-for-all definitive break with the power of sin. The old man, the old nature, it has been crucified with Christ. And that means your old self is not just partially dead, not just a little dead, but fully and truly dead, just as Christ truly died. And that old man is replaced with a completely new life, raised with Christ to live for God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. In fact, I would say that these truths are laid out so clearly, so forcefully here, that we may be tempted to think that a believer who has been truly united to Christ in his death and resurrection, we might be tempted to think we will never struggle with sin and temptation at all. As we move forward, we see that that's not the case. But what must be emphasized here, the principle, the reality, the truth, that you have died with Christ. You are dead to sin. You have been risen to new life. Now this reality still needs to be worked out in your life. 
And that brings us to the imperative. Verses 11 through 14. Live as who you are. Live as dead to sin and alive to God. Now, the imperative refers to what needs to be done. This is the believer's necessary response to these truths. And the first necessary response is to embrace your new identity. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul does not say here. He does not command us to die to sin and live to God. He doesn't need to command us to do that because you have died to sin. You have been raised with Christ. This is already true of you through union with Christ. And so he doesn't command us to do this. Instead, he simply says, consider this to be true. Reckon this to be true. Embrace this truth. Know this truth. Meditate on it every day and let it shape your life. This is your new identity. Embrace it. A new identity is powerful. If you continue to consider yourself a slave to sin, when the temptation comes, you think you have no other option but to give in to it. Your master speaks and so you obey. But a Christian has a new identity and a new master. You are dead to sin, alive to God. And so when sin speaks, you can ignore it. You can disregard it. You say, that's my old slave master speaking. I have nothing to do with him. Rather, when God speaks, you obey. This is who you are. Because by faith, you are united to Christ. Paul speaks of this new identity also in 1 Corinthians 6 where he writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, your identity used to be sinner, unrighteous, idolater, whatever sin used to characterize your life. But now you have been, you have died and been raised with Christ and you have a new identity. You are no longer that old man. Your identity is now Christian. You are in Christ. This is who you are. Remind yourself every day. Embrace this new identity. And then live out of it. That's how Paul goes on to encourage us. To live out of this new identity. To respond with our whole lives. And here he gives us three aspects to this response with the whole life. First he says... Don't let sin reign in you any longer. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin is the old slave master, and it used to be impossible to disobey, impossible to do anything but sin. But you have died to sin. Its power over you is broken. J.B. Fesco writes, When an accused criminal stands before the judge... 
shackled in chains, and the judge pronounces the verdict not guilty. The bailiff comes over, removes the shackles, and the prisoner goes free. Similarly, similarly, when God declares us righteous, the shackles and bonds of sin and death come off, and we are freed in Christ to live lives of holiness and righteousness. We are free to become what we have been declared in Christ. We are free to be holy. The sin is no longer on the throne of your life, so don't let it reign. As you know, even though you have been set free from slavery, this does not mean that it's completely gone. This does not mean that you cannot choose to give in to sin. Yes, it goes against your new identity. It goes against everything you are now in Christ, but you can still listen to sin. You can still return to it. You can still give in to its temptations. We see a real-life example of this in the Israelites when they were set free from slavery in Egypt. But so soon after being set free, some are longing to return to their slavery, and that for the most foolish of reasons. They miss their melons and leeks and onions and garlic. You see, it was easier to get Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the hearts of Israel. A newly freed slave has all the privileges of that freedom, but you need to learn to use those privileges. You need to learn to walk in that freedom. You've been accustomed to rolling in the muck of your sin, but now you must learn to walk in the purity of Christ. You've been accustomed to sneaking around in the darkness of sin, but now you must learn to walk in the light of Christ. The lusts of the body are particularly in focus here in verse 12. And those lusts of the body continue to make demands on you. Continue to say, do this and you will be satisfied. Do this and you'll be fulfilled, even though it is sinful. But the liberated Christian is now free to disobey those demands. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't return to your old slave master. Don't let sin reign in you any longer. Paul then goes on to a second aspect. He frames this in terms of offering our bodies and particularly the members of your body to serve one or the other, either the old slave master or the new. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here in speaking of the members of the body, Paul is speaking of our body parts, the eye, the hand, the mouth, the foot, etc. And he calls them instruments, not speaking here of necessarily musical instruments, but instruments in the sense of tools, tools that can be placed in the hand of either sin to do sin's will or placed in the hand of God to serve him and his purposes. We are called to be instruments in the hands of God, to do his work. Just as the Lord spoke to Ananias of Paul, he said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts 9.15 So who are you using your body and all its members to serve? Who are you offering it to? Whose hand are you placing it in? 
Paul gave a survey of what it looks like to serve sin with the whole body back in chapter 3. Notice all the references to bodily parts. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In contrast to this, what does it look like to present our members who offer them to God for his service as instruments of righteousness? First, consider the eyes. Instead of having haughty eyes, instead of having no pity in the eyes, instead of being wise in your own eyes, we have instead those who look to the Lord, who look to his wisdom. In contrast to this, we have Job who made a covenant with his eyes, not to look on a woman with lust. Who are you serving with your eyes? Are you using them to look to the Lord? Are you using them to read scripture and fill your mind with the word of God? Or are you using them to look at the things of this world and fill your mind with worldly lusts and desires? Present your eyes to God as instruments for righteousness. Second, consider the tongue. You already saw Paul focus heavily on the sins of the tongue in Romans 3 and all the ways it can be offered to do evil. James also speaks of the tongue as a world of evil, but he urges us to tame the tongue, to not let curses flow out of our mouth, but rather blessing. Similarly, Paul writes, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Ephesians 5, 4. And let your speech be always gracious. Colossians 4, 6. Who are you serving with your tongue? What sorts of things are you saying? Are you using your tongue to glorify God, to proclaim his good news to others, to encourage one another with his word? Present your tongue to God as an instrument for righteousness. Third, consider your private parts. God created man, male, and female, and he gave us sexuality, and he blessed us and commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. And this is a good gift from God, but this gift can be perverted into all sorts of sexual immorality in the service of sin, And we are surrounded by this in our culture today, and it's seeking to press us into its mold. And instead of this, sex can be used in God's bounds of holy matrimony to glorify God and even to reflect the love of Christ for his bride, the church. So I ask you, who are you serving with your sexuality? Present your private parts to God as instruments for righteousness. Fourth, consider the hands. The hands are symbolic of all our actions. We do so much with our hands. We can strike with evil fists. We can use our hands to steal from others. Or we can use our hands to serve, to build, to do good work unto the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Who are you offering your hands to? Who are you serving 
with your hands today. Present your hands to God as instruments for righteousness. And fifth and finally, consider the feet. The path we walk with our feet is symbolic of our whole way of life. Luke says that Jesus came to guide our feet, our feet in the way of peace. Paul urges us to put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Are you walking today the way of peace? Are you walking on the wide road that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life? Present your feet to God as instruments for righteousness to walk in his way. Now we've seen a brief survey of some of the members of the body. We are to present these as uh, instruments for righteousness to the Lord. But Paul also says, give him your whole self. Give him everything you are. Later in the letter, he'll say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. We are to present each member and our whole selves to the Lord in his service. All this is described for us beautifully, expressed in the poetry of the hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Just a few of the lines. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. It should be clear that at the end of the day, there are only two options with what we will do with our bodies, with our lives. You have to serve somebody, and you will either sin, serve sin or serve the Lord. There's no concept in Scripture of total independence. Freedom to do whatever you want is really just freedom to sin. It's going back to that old slave master. Freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want, but rather the power to serve the Lord in righteousness. It's his service that is perfect freedom. And that brings us to the last verse in our passage, which urges us to live for God by the power of the grace of God. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Here Paul, again, brings up the concept of the law, and he contrasts it with the grace we have in Christ Jesus. As Paul has repeatedly argued in the letter, though the law of God truly sets forth what we must do, what he requires of us, it does not grant the power to do it, especially for those who are enslaved in sin. In fact, for sinners, the law only increases the trespass and leads to greater condemnation. But here he says that if we rest on the grace of God, if we embrace our new identity as united to Christ, dead to sin and alive to God in him, this grace gives us the power to overcome sin, the power to fulfill the law. This grace sets us free from the dominion of sin, sets us free to serve the Lord. So who are you serving this morning? To whom are you offering the members of your body? The answer to this question will actually be determined by a more fundamental question. Who are you trusting in? If you're still trusting in yourself, then you are in slavery to sin. 
and you will serve sin. But if you are trusting in Christ, if your faith is in him, then you are united to him by faith, united to his death and resurrection. And your new identity is dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Embrace this new identity. This is who you are. Trusting in Christ, you are set free from sin, free to serve the Lord. And so offer yourselves to him. Offer every part of you, of yourself to him. That you might be instruments in the hands of God. This is what you were created for. To serve the Lord, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so I encourage you to pray this prayer this morning. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. Lord, take all of me and use me as an instrument in your hand for your purposes, for your glory. For you have died and been raised with Christ. Serve him with all that is in you. And he will give you the grace and the power to do this every day. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the historical reality of what Christ has done for us. That he was born, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he died for our sins, and that he raised to conquer sin and death. We thank you that we are united to him by faith. And so united to him, we too have died to the old man. And we have been raised to live a new life in him. We thank you not only for the promise of the resurrection to come, but that resurrection life that is already at work in us now. Lord, we thank you for this new identity. And may you help us to embrace it, to know it, and to live out of it, dead to sin and alive to you through Jesus Christ. Help us every day to think on these things to know these truths and to live out of them, to consider how we might put every part of ourselves into your service to do your purposes and to bring you glory. And let us do this by the power of your grace at work in us, by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.